Uh, so today, actually, today is my first time actually scream, uh, also stream on Facebook and Instagram too. I added like so many other platforms. <laughs> it's insane. It's on LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, a Facebook page. Yeah. It will go well. I have to. Yeah. Anyway, so hi, Gina. Welcome to Venture with Grace today. Hi, Grace. You're a legend. So you grew um, Duolingo from like 3 million to 200 million. And now you're a founder yourself. Like, why don't we start with, can you give us a little bit of background viewers and from the Tumblr days to Latitude? And like for the audience who don't know about Latitude, um, can you share with us like what it is? Yes. Thank you for that, Grace. So it's great to be here. Um, I'm Gina. I'm originally from Brazil, born and raised. I was there for 18 years and then I came to the U.S., and I've been back and forth a bunch, but really living in the U.S. for 19 years, which is why I look, sound, and walk American at this point. But I am fully Brazilian. My husband's Brazilian. My family's Brazilian. Um, and from a from a really young age, I wanted to be either an actress or the girl at SeaWorld who does like this with the dolphin and the dolphin oh goes above God. you. You know, those are my two dreams. I obviously fell very yeah. far away from my dreams. Um, but I one thing that I think did connect to my actual career was that in high school, I taught English to underserved shantytown community adults uh, because English can learning English can double or triple your income potential in, in, mm -hmm. in developing countries. Um, and then I ended up working on Duolingo and helping them scale from three to 200 million users, bringing free language education to the world at a much larger scale. So I think that's one thing that from my upbringing that like kind of connects, but everything else is very much a zigzag like i like to say oh. for people who are like nervous about their career like i at no point do i know what's going to happen next yeah i feel you also you are you study anthropology and chinese i would just want to highlight that because my That's major true. was communication sociology <laughs> and anyway so like i feel like go everyone who study like liberal arts but anyway yeah it's true going. and I, I joke like so i ended up I, I started studying anthropology at reed college which is where i went for my undergrad which is known because Steve Jobs went there. And then I dropped out of Reed because Steve Jobs dropped out of Reed, but oh, also because God. I was terribly depressed. Um, <laughs> and when I went to my next school, Brandeis, which is a Jewish school, um, I, I really didn't like the anthropology professor and ended up going down a philosophy path because of that, because I liked the philosophy you know, professor a lot more. And I've always been really drawn to these big questions. So I ended up majoring philosophy and then working in a neuroscience lab and co-authoring a neuroscience study but that became sort of like my background. But I did study Chinese for three years and that was my true love and fashion. And I wanted to go live in Shanghai. But when I transferred schools, it didn't really make sense to, you know, do another thing abroad. My parents were like, you're already abroad. Um, and then my, I really wanted to stay in the U.S. So I needed an OPT, OPT H1B, et cetera, visa, which is also why I wasn't able to leave to go try a life in China. So that's that piece. Um, but like long story short, a lot of things went sort of like not that well after graduation. And I, I worked in digital marketing and I can talk about some things that went well there. But the how I got into tech is that I ended up kind of deciding that this whole like race to get to the top of like some company in the U.S. was just not going to be it for me. And I and I went back to Brazil and that's around when Tumblr um, approached me and hired me because they were looking for someone to help them grow in, in Brazil. And so I'm happy to. One topic that I'm always happy to talk about is like how to get those opportunities when you don't have the network and you didn't go to the right schools, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then that's when I started understanding that there was this great opportunity, huge communities online, and a lot of 
appetite for international expansion for tech companies in the US where things were already like very far along compared to other parts of the world. And I started a company to help tech startups grow in, in Latin America. And that's how I, I got connected to Duolingo because they were looking for someone to grow, help them grow in Brazil. And so they ended up hiring me as a consultant. And then I was a consultant there and they were like, this is working really well. Do you want to help us grow in Chile, Argentina and Mexico? And I was like, yes. I don't think I'd ever been to Mexico at that point in time. But I, you know, when you're 26, 27, like you have to just say yes. And I was like, mm -hmm. yep, I got this. And then you Google a lot and you talk to people <laughs> until you figure it out. Um, and that worked. And that's, you know, that's how my journey at Duolingo began. I was there for five years and helped them grow from three to 200 million users. I certainly didn't do it alone. There was an amazing team, an amazing product, an incredible vision. Um, but I, I was there as their head of growth from, for five years. So I think I contributed and I learned a lot and I was part of the executive team. Uh, and yeah, so that's like, I think the big part of my story after that, like a couple other things, I worked on a presidential campaign here in New York, and then I co-founded Latitude. Um, and then to answer your question about what is Latitude, um, we started three and a half years ago, right in the like, beginning of the pandemic, like June, 2020. And I'm with three co-founders, me, Brian Reckworth, and Yuri Danielchenko. And we really wanted to figure out how to support the Latin American tech ecosystem at scale. Because, both because of a mission, I would say. I'm Brazilian, and I really want to help Latin Americans succeed. I think that there's huge opportunity, and I've had a lot of privileges in my life. And I think it's my responsibility to connect people who are smarter and more ambitious than me in solving big problems for a region with the right resources and people in Silicon Valley and the right capital. But on the other hand, there's a huge financial opportunity because there's so much growth that will still happen in Latin America in the next decade. It's a matter of time, just from the point of view of like digitalization and the rate at which um, digital tools are, is beginning to be adopted, but also how few solutions there are compared to more developed markets for things that are super simple, like getting small and medium businesses to be able to operate beyond an Excel file or worse, like piece of paper, pen and paper, um, access to healthcare, access to education, everything is sort of ripe for disruption on the B2B side and the B2C side. And so being there for founders when they're super early and they've now, many of these people have now worked at top tech companies like Nubank, which IPO'd a few years ago at like 30 something billion dollar valuation. This is like our real big players in the market. These people are coming out excited to build startups and we want to be there to both support them and capture that potential value. Mm, I have so many questions there. First of all, like you mentioned, um, you like you wanted to live in Shanghai. I have lived in Shanghai. <laughs> so I like I wonder. So speaking of that, like I feel like uh, I see a path of like you were trying to help uh, companies to grow in Brazil or like to grow in Latin. Right. So I feel like based on my experience of like working with companies, let's say like Chinese company and like from China to the U.S., I feel like there's a lot of cultural differences. And um, when I like when I was like selecting job right out of school people were always like telling me hey you need to do something in between countries that's like where you can leverage your quote-unquote out yes. there advantage but that's I what I did just, oh yeah like I think you did such a good job and then I feel like you found the right company for you because I feel like Duolingo because think about Duolingo it is a company that have to expand into every country but um when we're talking about the opportunity it's more of like oh it's like a China-based company in trying to expand into us in particular or us company trying to expand in china i just didn't really feel like there were 
a lot of really or maybe just like the opportunities that I personally could reach to are like kind of challenging to be the person in between because I I just see like so many cultural differences like from understanding like the financial side of things or like how people do things do things right like in america people would outsource to like a, a bunch of third parties but in china like people probably do everything in-house so when i was working i feel like oh there's like no opportunity like in between countries because um you either have to be like let's say like um like a really like you're like based in one particular country and then you're like really really honing into that but i wonder when you're picking the opportunity so how did you come across like do like i know that you come across duolingo from they're like one of your clients when you were working at your own like working on your own like agency or like something so i wonder how do you pick the opportunity that have the scalability for you as a person mm -hmm with like dual citizen or like not dual citizen but like dual cultural situation by the way i also yeah. did ib i saw you did ib i also did ib i did ib i regretted it <laughs> but i did oh, it was hard man like ib was hard but anyway it was harder than college um yeah for sure so great i think that's a really good point here's i have a couple things to say about this first um it is true china is a, so different it like the differences between brazil and the us from a cultural perspective are much smaller than the differences between the us and china i think from so many different perspectives but also in terms of i think where the market's at because china is not behind the us by any means it's just like to the side of and like the opportunity the things that are happening there like most Americans in tech would be, die to understand. And that was already the case when I went to China like 2015 to launch Duolingo. And mm -hmm. it was a completely different world where all like the apps were basically living inside one app, you know, and like the super app, like the super apps. And everyone was like just launching these individual apps in the US and it felt like so archaic in comparison. But at the same time, US tech companies were like, oh, like look at these Chinese like sites, they're so cluttered. They don't understand like, you know, design, finesse, and like simplicity. But at the same time, you go to China and you're like, why are these people like using all these different apps? Like everything's integrated and we can do everything in one place, you know? Um, and I was really curious to find out, you know, which way things were going to go. It doesn't seem like we have, I would say maybe evolved that much on the Western side of like really consolidating, but some of that has started to happen. Um, when we, when I launched Duolingo in China, it was really tough. And I don't even think that it was a success um because of all of these different the, these differences and also other things that are hard to control like the fact that the government blocked duolingo the first day because we got a million downloads and then everyone started using duolingo and and rating as like zero on the app store one or whatever because it didn't work because it was blocked and then it was really hard to recover from that um but more directly in answer to your question i think when we're in our 20s or when you're starting your career you have to identify and this is not just by the way i think when you're starting it's just anyone you always have to understand what are your points of leverage as you said like where do you have an advantage against your peers or against like other people in the world why are you going to get hired for something why what's your edge right when you're starting out your career you probably don't have one because many people studied sociology and many people studied philosophy neuroscience and whatever like what is your edge? And so for me, being in this position where I understood how Brazil and quote unquote Latin America function, and I say quote unquote, because like mm -hmm. Latin America has a lot of differences between countries. We don't even talk to each other that much. There's different languages, et cetera. A lot of companies in LATAM trying to expand into Brazil have a lot of trouble and vice versa. But to the United States, those nuances are not visible. So they're just like Latin America is Latin America. 
much like to the United States, like China's China, but when you're like in China, you know, China is huge and people are very different from there, like very different regions. And, you know, there's a lot of diversity. Um, but I saw myself in an opportunity where I could pitch myself as like this bridge. And even if I wasn't an expert and I didn't quite understand a lot of things, I mean, Tumblr asked me to launch and grow and then Duolingo asked me to launch and grow. And I had zero experience doing that, but I was smart and like, and hacky and I could figure it out and I could pitch myself as like sort of the answer to this problem you have, which is I have no idea how to start in Brazil. I think that someone like you at that moment do have an opportunity to be like, I'm going to be the China American um, expert, even if the opportunities are not exactly now, you know, and like you have like this startup and maybe they're like, it can't directly translate into the US, but like understand, like becoming the person to everyone wants to come and ask like, well, how would we do this in China or how should China do this here and just go and study like, cases of success, which are not that many. And try to understand what were the you know the things that worked across them. I will I will tell you in 2015 when we launched in China, like our investors were super on our on our like faces about like you have to expand to China. China like if you win in China you win, but it's so hard. So having someone who can play that card I think gives you an advantage and then an opportunity to go and learn all of those skills. And so I I know you said Duolingo was in a particular case, and it's true. But I was also working with Tumblr before that, and I did a little bit of consulting light consulting, I would say, maybe unpaid to companies like Instagram and Yelp. Um, so really, there was just a lot of opportunity, not just Duolingo. So I think what I would advise someone in your shoes to do what I did, like start a little quote unquote consulting business where you can then like work with a lot of different startups and apps and companies like mm -hmm. at the same time so that you understand like where the opportunity is and where you really like the team and what product you really believe in. And then you can double down and take on a bigger opportunity. Um, when you say consulting, what would you do if you didn't have the experience when you're like working on these problems? Because my yeah. biggest fear of like becoming a consultant or like consulting someone, it's more like, am I qualified? Because um, mm -hmm. I hear you say this is like a challenge for you, which is like, you know, having like have to like fake it until you make it or like trying to brag about yourself. Like, I feel like it's challenging for me to um, I have to like literally become an expert of an expert of an expert knows all the answer before I like consult someone on something. Um, but I wonder how would you go about like consulting other people? Because no one have, you know, take Duolingo to over the world before you took them. Exactly. Over the world, right. So I wonder yes. what's your thought process on like, or like, how do you prepare yourself to be like, you know, consulting these like big companies? Yes. Or, like, Great question. Great. And I think, so look, I don't want to take away the merit from people who go and actually become experts in things or like people who work at very serious, large consulting companies like McKinsey and maybe actually like have frameworks that they can draw on and expertise in house. I'm not taking away from that. I didn't have the opportunity to work in those scenarios. I also am not saying that you should lie. However, it's exactly what you said. And I think it tends to be more of a female position to think I am not 100% ready for this job. So I'm going to become 100% ready for this job. And then I will take this job. And my advice is become ready by taking the job, like, mm -hmm. which is really scary because I have been in jobs where people were like, you don't know anything. And I was fired once and I was laid off once. And you have to be ready for the fact that you're going to be confronted by your ignorance a couple of times and it's going to feel really badly. So you know, you have to be comfortable with that. But I advise being comfortable with that because most people, as you said, like no one had launched Duolingo around the world like I did. No one had helped Tumblr scale in Latin America before I did it. And I didn't have the preparation to do so. I just had what in like 
Jewish culture, like we call chutzpah, which is more mm-hmm. Yiddish, which is just like, we will just like, just do it. Just, you know, just figure it out. And like, I was just Googling a lot, even to the point when Duolingo asked me to lead growth, I went home, I went to my desk and I Googled what is growth after saying yes to the opportunity, you know? Um, so I would challenge you to just under, like, to see, to, to believe in your ability to figure things out. I read something recently about like, a, actually it was Elizabeth Yin, um, co-founder of Hustle mm-hmm. Fund. And one of her co-founders wrote something like, Elizabeth really believes in her ability to figure things out. And I was like, that's me. That's that's what's kept me going. Like, I don't have the answers, but I believe that unless it's like rocket science and taking a ship to you know the moon or like very advanced machine learning knowledge, like I can figure it out. So if it's like, okay, how are we going to, launch in a bunch of countries. I don't know. I'm going to go and Google, find out how everyone else did it. Talk to a bunch of experts, come up with a bunch of ideas, figure out how to prioritize them, try all of them, see what works, you know, report back. Mm-hmm. And like one of those things is bound to work. Maybe not to the extent that you hoped it would at first, but then you'll have learned a bunch from that. And now the second thing you're going to try is going to be even better. And then you start building for yourself sort of like a moat of knowledge and experience that then makes you actually have that knowledge and experience for the next opportunity. And that's what I mean by fake it till you make it. It's not so much fake it. It's more like believe in yourself, make others believe in you so that you can get the foot in the door instead of waiting for the door to open and for you to be perfectly ready to walk through the door before even trying to knock. Mm -hmm. Totally. I, I really love this. Like, oh, by the way, like Elizabeth Inns co-founder was on our show like two weeks ago. But anyway. Elizabeth Inns co-founder. Oh, cool. Yeah. Eric was on our show a few uh, weeks ago. But anyway, so I have two questions there. Like, so this is like irrelevant. Let's talk about like latitude first. Like, because Mm -hmm. when I first hear about how you built latitude, it was like during uh, on deck and you meet your co-founder there and all that so is this like a latin version of on deck or slash yc um how does it work and i know that you guys also have like the biggest conference i've saw like american vc went to that conference and i went i wanted i wanted to just like um learn more about like what are let's say like you guys have a fund that's like 25 million or so like and then there is a uh conference and then i love the podcast too like i think there's a podcast I don't know if I think it's related. I think it's like probably your co-founder's podcast. I'm not exactly sure because it's it was, ours, but he leaked it. Yes. Yeah. So because I like listened to some of the past guests who went on that podcast as well. And uh, and then there is a so like your specialty is like in growth, right? So I wanted to learn more about like number one, like what are the product and offerings? And number mm-hmm. two, like how do you start? Like also yes. uh, when you pick the co-founders. Um, since like you guys all met in on deck, I personally felt like it's just really hard to find a partner to like trust them and like have yes. like a complementary skill set and like not fight with each other all day, like or like have like co-founder divorce or something. I want I wanted to learn more about like how do you go about this journey of like this new venture. Yes, those are a lot of questions. So I'm gonna you can interrupt me if I end up talking too long to answer all of them. Um, it's never too long. I will never interrupt. Okay. No, you can definitely interrupt me because then your your listeners might get tired. Um, but so there's a couple of things I wanted to add to that. First, like in addition to all the things you said, we also have an amazing newsletter, um, which is I think very funny, uh, which is weird for this kind of uh, content. We but at this but the most most importantly, we also have products that we built and we raised 
actually a seed round led by Andres and Horowitz, NFX mm -hmm. and Endeavor. So we raised, it was like something like 13 million. I don't, don't want to get it wrong, um, which is a large seed for Latin America to build products in Latin America. So it's like we build products to help founders succeed. And by products, I mean like incorporating your startup is really a pain and it's expensive and it takes long, especially if, in your, if you're in, in a country in Latin America, because you need to have an offshore structure a lot of the time which means you not only need to incorporate in like Brazil, but you also need a Delaware like company. And then, mm -hmm. you know, my co-founder, Brian, he sold his last company for $600 million and he ended up having to pay a hundred million dollars in taxes to the U S because he incorporated it in the wrong way. So it's very important that founders understand these things up front and oh, yeah, hundred million. I'm just kidding. I know. That's I know. Crazy. It's crazy. So it, we so we decided to like, okay, that's a big pain for founders and no one wants to be dealing with incorporations. They want to be dealing with like building their team and raising money and understanding like what their what their customers need. Um, so we, we automated, basically built platform to make that a lot easier to do. And then once you do that, you need to stay compliant in a bunch of different jurisdictions, which basically means like you need to pay the right taxes in Brazil and then Delaware and then maybe came in and then not just taxes, but anything that's like compliance related. Also no, super unsexy, super not fun. No one wants to be thinking about it, expensive, time consuming. So we build a platform to do that. And we're basically building stuff like that that makes it easier for founders in Latin America to not have to get distracted by the unsexy, really annoying stuff they have to do even before they get started with their startup. So that's a really important piece of the business. And when we started, um we were at on deck so the three of us did two of us met at on deck one of them did not one of us did not meet at on deck and the important thing here is that so i was doing on deck because i wanted to build a different business i thought i was going to go and move to berlin where i was going to like test pilot this like company that i wanted to build for single parents that was kind of going to be like tinder but for not for tinder for dating but for like meeting like-minded single parents who you can co-parent with in oh like my a, god, that's so specific too. And like, yeah, well, let me explain. Well, it's only specific because what I really wanted to solve for was the fact that I think that we're, you know, we're so lonely. We're increasingly lonely because we move away from our family and friends all the time. And so if you live in a city like Shanghai or New York or Sao Paulo, you're living among millions of people next door, but you don't know any of them and it's very lonely. And I wanted to solve for that problem. Like, how can we help people find people around them in like a, like very close by like walking distance that you can share life responsibilities with if you had like a like a you know a partner or like a community so whether it be like practical like cooking and cleaning or like things that you want to do together um but then I started thinking who feels that pain most acutely because that's a very broad product so I thought single parents probably feel that pain most acutely because they have to like do everything and somehow like still survive so they're like doing all the things that normally like roommates would be doing or like or, or like partners would be doing at the same time, taking care of a child at the same time, trying to work and like taking care of themselves. And it's too much. But if like your neighbor is going to Trader Joe's and you were going to go to Trader Joe's five minutes later to like, and you live like next door, why can't you just ask your neighbor to go for you? And maybe you can do something in exchange for your neighbor. That was the idea. So anyway, I, this is what I was thinking about community building and the future of like how to integrate society in a way that we were not as lonely. I met Brian because he reached out to me and I had never heard of him, which is crazy because he sold the company for $600 million in Brazil, which is my country. <laughs> and like, and I should know, but I didn't because I've been in the US for so long that I've lost touch and I had never heard of his company or anything like that. And then when I realized like what big of a deal he was um, and all the things he'd done, I felt kind of really bad because I, when he reached out to me, I was like, I'm really busy. Can we meet in like two months or something ridiculous like that? You know? And, and by the time that I did connect with him on, on like Zoom, I realized that we were 30 minutes away from each other because I had crossed the country by car. 
like I crossed from the East Coast to the West Coast by car with my dog. And mm-hmm. by the time I talked to him on Zoom, we were there. And On Deck talks a lot about engineered serendipity, which is like this amazing, like just engineering opportunities for serendipity for yourself. And it really felt like engineered serendipity that that happened. Mm-hmm. And Brian had already been working with Yuri, who's our third co-founder, who's a Russian man who lives in like in this like small town outside of Sao Paulo, Brazil. So like super random. I had never met Yuri. I just met Brian. And so we didn't know each other to the extent that we should have accepted to be co-founders with each other. Now, looking back, it was incredible luck, in my opinion, that like I I love Brian and, and Yuri as much as I do and that we work as well together. And at the same time, some work on our end in terms of like making that happen. Like I had a big fallout with Yuri like three months, three months into it because I was just like really annoyed at him. And he was like, who's this girl who like just joined our little like team out of nowhere? I've never even met her, you know, so that it wasn't super easy. But I will say what really I think helps in that case is like admiration and respect. So I know what Brian and Yuri bring to the table that I can't bring. And I know how much I have to learn from Brian and from Yuri. And I know that they know that about me because of how they treat me. So to me, that's like the most core thing. And then we are all, we also have very complementary skills. Um, in some ways, I overlap with Brian on some things, but like, but not enough that we actually step on each other's feet at all. So that's worked out really well, but it's, it's, it was a gamble. And in the same fashion, I actually got married. I got engaged to a man three months after I started dating him, which is also not enough time for you to know if it's going to work out. <laughs> but I believe, and, and this is, I think, true about my relationships professionally and personally. I believe that a lot of whether a relationship works or doesn't work is your commitment to it working. Uh, I know it's easy to say because like you can't, I've met a lot of people who I could have never worked out with, but I think I met a lot of people who I could have worked out with and I just didn't think they were the perfect person. And then I moved on. You know, that's what you do in your 20s a lot when there's so much opportunity out there. <laughs> and at one point, I was just like, I, I'm watching my friends get divorced. Like, you know, so far, not that many, but maybe like 25% of, of like my married friends, right? Something like that. And I'm watching other people get divorced. And it doesn't seem to be a correlation between like how perfect you were from each other on day one. Or like, it, it's, it, I don't know. So I just really believe in like committing. And the other thing is my, and to getting a little personal here, my, I was engaged before and that previous relationship very, in large part didn't work because my ex refused to commit to say like, we are going to be married. And to me saying we are going to be married means we are going to work on this because we do not want to get divorced. And so that applies to co-founders too. Like Brian, Yuri and I are married. So like, if I don't like something Brian said, I don't just walk away and said, you know what, I'm just going to do something else. We're married because like we have stock options together. And like, there's a lot of like financial and reputational risk in us walking away so it's a lot easier for us to face it and actually give each other feedback and work on things that are upsetting each other um but i forgot the other questions that you had um so what are the product and offerings of latitude Mm -hmm. and how do you get started yes okay so in the beginning so yuri and brian were kind of thinking products that's what where they were they were like let's build products for founders and i was like on deck is life changing. Eric Thornburg, I, I, I'm friends with him, and I and he knows I love on deck. And so the, you know uh, Julian, who's now the CEO, I'm a big fan. And I really, it was a time when I was particularly lonely. I was at English engagement, and I was crossing the country by myself with my dog, thinking about starting a company. And I had, and it was the pandemic, so people weren't meeting each other. And I remember thinking, I haven't met a more special group of people in a very long time. Just incredibly smart, ambitious people, and like watching these sessions with some of the best founders in Silicon Valley, it was just really amazing. And I thought, you know, I really think that, you know, I'm a very 
diversity-minded feminists, etc. That has shifted a little bit ever since I realized Jews don't really count. But we we won't go into that now. But I I've been I'm I'm very strong on on those topics in general. And I would think like why are there so few women and minority uh, representatives who are founders of startups? And I think one of the reasons um, there are many, but I think one of them is that it's very risky to leave a company and then start something new because you have to be in this weird period of nothingness where you don't like your family members ask, what are you working on? And you have to say, I'm figuring it out. Or like, I think I'm starting a company or I don't know, I'm trying to pick an idea or whatever. And it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like it's just, it's very, makes you feel really kind of crappy about yourself. But like being in on deck was for me, like a little bit like of a buffer to that, because it's like, I got into this very prestigious fellowship. It's called on deck. You've never heard of it, but it's for people who are special and might be founders one day. It's like going to like school or to an MBA. Suddenly you have something to say when people ask you that question. And it gives you a sense of like, I'm doing something every day that I'm on the right track. I'm meeting the right people. I'm going to get there versus like, I'm in a cafe staring at the wall, really hoping that like I figure out what I'm going to do, you know? So I was like, if we could do this for Brazil, I think that we can increase the number of minority and like women founders in the market. And when I had this conversation with Brian, he was like, not Brazil, Latin America. And I was like, you're right. Why not? Like Latin America, you know, we might as well. And so we started talking and basically where we connected was Brian and I are both mentors in different capacities to founders across, well, him more Brazil and Latin America, me a little bit around the world because Endeavor would connect me with like Japan or whatever. But anytime I talk to a Latin American founder, I would feel like, okay, this person is incredibly smart, incredibly ambitious, solving a huge problem in Latin America. And somehow they have very little access to very simple information because I would say something to me was simple and they would be like, wow, that's an amazing insight. And I'd be like, it's not that amazing. And you just think it's amazing because you didn't have access to the people and resources that I had access to. So like, what can we do to change that at scale? And that's when we started talking about latitude and sort of like doing sort of like, not really an on deck thing, but kind of, uh, let's say inspired by and like in, um, get some early founders together, help them access the best resources, the best people, meet each other across the whole region, et cetera. And there was, I think, a couple months there where we were like, are we kind of like doing like an on deck thing, but for Latin America, but we, I think quickly evolved because on one hand on deck evolved in one direction and then had their own bumps. So they decided to launch um, uh, on deck on deck X or something like that. Was it like the, where they invested in like basically like a accelerator type thing where they invested in everyone that got in and like, that was super tough and they had some turmoil and we went like all in on Latam, started building these products and then launched our own fund, but it wasn't tied to on deck because it wasn't tied to our cohorts because it didn't make sense to do that for Latin America. For a lot of reasons, I think while it is not cool to start a company that very much resembles something else that exists in another market, I will say not cool. Like I think it's very it's fairly common practice and happens. And if you don't think that that company is going after that market, it's okay. But I, I think that w the most interesting things happen when you have somewhere to start from, and then you actually listen to your users and try to solve problems for that market and allow that to guide you towards the direction that you need to go in instead of following whoever it is that you started out sort of like looking like. And so with Latitude, we evolved uh, a lot in one direction because of the, the needs we were seeing from founders in Latin America. And similarly to, to Y Combinator. So we do get compared to Y Combinator a lot, which I am very proud of because I think YC is just unbelievable and incredible and has been around forever. And it would be a dream to be like a Y Combinator for Latin America. Some people say that but we have a lot of big differences and we could have many times said, you know what, let's just do exactly what YC does, but for Latin America. And I have in fact said that at 
latitude a couple points because i'm just like i love i want to be the jessica livingston of latin america you know <laughs> <laughs> but like we every time we talk about it and we talk about what are the actual like realities of living in latin america and building for that region it's a bit different it doesn't make sense for us to go in that direction 100 percent so we started morphing and building something that worked for us and then learning from our own experiences we we ran 11 cohorts some of them with 100 people like we created a huge admissions cycle uh hired incredible people to help us do that um and then drew back a bit we're now launching a new cohort today actually um in a couple of hours and it's going to be uh for fifth uh something like 15 founders instead of 100 so very different and we're also starting a, a like a program for our portfolio companies which we hadn't done before to help them sort of like accelerate some of their goals and add peer pressure which is a yc thing but not it's not going to be in person. It's going to be all on Zoom. It's going to be across the whole, all of Latin America. And the kinds of things we offer are very different. We're inviting like visiting partners who are like top people at companies in Latin America to come support those founders. So it ends up being a, a you know our own iteration based on all of those learnings. It's and I will add like it's similar to and and by the way like the products are still growing a ton. So we actually this year officially split things up. So now we have Latitude Products and it's led by Yuri, my co-founder, who's a CTO. And then we have Latitude Ventures, the community, the, uh, the fund um, and the programs, which are led by me and um, Tom, uh, Thomas Roggio in, in, in Uruguay, an Argentinian man. Um, but I will say that like one, one thing that people would say to me at Duolingo, like, is like, you know, a lot of people can just copy Duolingo. Like I, it's not that hard. Just like build a thing that has like a little tree and, people, and I'm like, no, you can't. And you don't know why you can't, because we can see how the sausage is made. And by seeing how the sausage is made, we make all of our decisions that lead to the next decisions. Everyone, anyone who copies something, they only have the surface level thing at that moment, but they're unable to, to see all the data points that led to that moment. Then therefore they're unable to draw on that experience and future iterations to grow in the right direction. They'll just not make good decisions. So it's a very short term thinking type plan. Totally. I have so many questions there. One is <laughs> like, how do you do your user research? And like, what were the insights that you found um, when you were first starting mm. uh, Latitude? So what we first did, because you asked us what we like, you know, when we started is we like I knew a couple of founders. Brian is really well related in Brazil, Latin America, and then others in my team. But we invited the top 20 founders we could think of across all of Latin America. And we said, hey, for free, no equity. We're not charging you anything. We just want to help you, but we want to figure out how to help you at scale. And we like said they were like, OK, like it's going to be a four or four, six, I think four week thing. And we're going to invite the best people we know to teach you about like all the things that we think you need to know about in a startup. And we just did that. And then that worked out really well. And the NPS was super high. Like people were like, this was awesome. I loved it. I loved meeting other founders. It's so lonely being a founder. And now I feel like I'm part of something and I learned so much and I get, gained access to people I wouldn't have. I have this friend who's an amazing founder. Can he join me or she joined me? And we were like, okay, we'll do one more. So then we did like another cohort. And then we did another cohort. And then we were like, well, we need to pay for this team. So like, let's charge people just enough so that we can pay for this. But it was like a non-profitable operation. We're just doing that. But what that enabled us to do was to build an incredible moat, which was top founders in Latin America who now know what Latitude is, are super proud of being associated with it, love it, are helping build it. And then for us, it means getting to know those founders really well, all of their problems, and to start seeing patterns among their problems so that we can understand what needs to be solved for. 
And we got a lot of questions about incorporation, for example, and compliance all the time. Hey, do you have like an accountant that takes care of these two different countries? Do you have a lawyer who's not that expensive, who blah, 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 like all the time people would ask each other and us. So we knew, okay, these are real pain points, you know, just by from the questions that we were getting. And that happens a lot of the time. We look at the questions people are asking. We're like, okay, we keep getting these similar questions all the time. That means it's a very big problem. How do we solve it in a way that isn't just like every time someone asks that question, we give them an answer, like in a way that is more scalable. So in in a way, I would say that the discovery happened a little bit organically, at least in the early days. And then when we started building, we started like, you know, getting to know our customers really well and what their problems are and what their other problems are and like, and, and iterating from that point of view. So we didn't have to do as much as like, let's come up with like lists of people and call them and ask them questions because we found a way to bring them to us. Um, I'm taking notes. I feel like there's a lot of really interesting things there. Like I wanted to, I know I sound like so nerdy, but like, I wonder, like you mentioned top 20 founders, can you define what is top? And you mentioned there's like no equity. You help them to scale. Right. And I wonder what I said in Tao, it's like a bunch of, uh, super successful, uh, funders or like operators just all come together but help like that's what like means like one-on-one chat or like on deck like just like one person like there's like a kind of like curriculum or whatever whoever yeah. wants to come and give us a talk and then we can just all listen and it, like why 20 because I feel like you know even on deck has like a million people went through on deck and like YC have like hundreds of people the entire um I guess the mindset people have was like if I build a product, I can just sell across like all these other companies within the ecosystem. And yes. I wonder, uh, yeah, just curious, like what are these, like why you make yeah. these like, small decisions? So many good questions, Grace. And there's so many layers to those answers because when you are building, especially something that is community-based or community-driven or or that has some sort of like prestige associated with it, as a business, you of course benefit from having as many people as possible pay for your services or interested in your services, mm-hmm. but you can kill your business by letting in the wrong kinds of people or the wrong tiers of people. So for example, if you went to Harvard, I don't, mm-hmm. I hate Harvard right now because of, uh, you know, the whole Israel thing. So let's just not talk about Harvard, but like, if you want to go into like Tec de Monterrey, that's the top university in Mexico or Boazici is the top university in Turkey. Okay. Um, <laughs> then, and you go to one of those schools and you start talking to your peers on the first day of class, you're like, Oh, Hey Grace, you know, what's up? Like, what's tell me your story. And like, you're not at all impressed. And it's just like, you know, it's not great. You know, not you Grace, obviously, but someone just like, didn't work as hard as you did or hasn't accomplished the things that you've accomplished and doesn't have the ambition that you have, you start thinking like, what am I doing here? Like, this seems to be kind of a waste of my time. And then people don't apply anymore and people don't want to be there anymore. The reason, like one of the main reasons why these top universities succeed isn't, and this is something that I learned at OnTech because of the concept of unbundling a university. Like it's not, they don't, people don't go there for the education. They go there like maybe 20% for the education. But like, I would say 40% for the stamp of approval there. I went to this university, it's on my curriculum. And then 40% of the network because of the network, like, because I'm going to meet my future business partners, because I'm going to get inspired by my peers, because I'm going to meet a wife or husband that I think is uh, like at my level uh, intellectually. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. why people go to these institutions. And so it's not in your interest to just open the door to as many people as possible, because it's very easy for that. I don't want to say bar to... To, to get lowered, but just, you know, in order to keep those high, super high standards and a feeling of like exclusivity and being able to really pay attention to those people, it, there's a line at which, you know, scaling actually hurts. 
Um, and that's something that communities and on deck and, and OIC and Latitude struggle with. It's it's tough to scale something and maintain that feeling of belonging, of specialness, of like something, you know, extra that that you want to build with something like a top university or a top program for tech founders. We started with 20 and was kind of arbitrary because it was like, who are the best founders we can think of? And how do we define best founders? Really good question because it's such a, like a, an, it, it's such a, a biased approach. You can use a lot of different metrics, like top founders are founders who are able to raise X amount of money or get to X traction or who have like seen a growth spurt of this much or who are bootstrapping and still doing a lot of revenue or who have worked at like, I don't know, um, what's a great example, who have worked at Duolingo in an executive position <laughs> and now like really know how to like make things happen in the ed tech space, you know? So there's a lot of that and it's a composition. So it was kind of based on like, we know this person, they're amazing. We think they're really impressive and what they've achieved is awesome kind of thing. And then with time, we started putting more of a, a description to those attributes. Like now when we let people in, we actually discuss like, what are the things that we think make make this person really potentially likely to succeed? And it's not, you know, most of these programs admit people who have gone to top universities or worked at top companies. We do too. It's a very easy signifier that someone has something special if they made it there, but it's certainly not the only one. And in Latin America, we have to be very careful not to have only that bias because the vast majority of of our populations have not had those privileges. So um, we just invested in founders that I'm really excited about, like super excited about what they're building. And they come from like a very poor area of Sao Paulo, all of them. And they're like 22 year old engineers. But just the fact that they've like, they've reached 500,000 in ARR bootstrapped like over like one year just by themselves with no advice, you know? So it's like, oh my gosh, you, I want to teach. I want to give you all the resources because I can see just how far you can run even by yourself. That I think that if I can help you, you can go that much further. So we started mm -hmm. with 20 and then we started scaling because more and more people wanted to participate. And there are incredible people in Latin America. Like it's a very large region. I forget now it's 600 million. I'm going to get this number wrong. So I'm like worried. I'm going to say, I'm going to say 600 million people. Um, there's a lot of people in Latin America. And so there's great, it's easy to get a hundred amazing people per cohort, but amazing starts losing a bit of that meaning when, you know, you're not being as selective. So what we end up now is with, a, we have a great community of 1,300 something people that we're really proud of and still nurturing and is seen as very high value. Like a lot of people are like, I just want to join your community because I heard that like it helps you in so many different ways. And so it's great people. But many of those people have now given up on entrepreneurship or taken, I don't want to say gave up, but maybe they took great job opportunities. So they're not entrepreneurs anymore. Or some of those people have like tried and tried and tried and they have not succeeded. And so, you know, there are things that happen over time that are inevitable because of just like the Pareto principle, like the the, the likelihood of success in startups is like way below the Pareto principle. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a balance. And for us, it was important to scale that way because we wanted to build a brand where we didn't exist. So now everyone in the ecosystem, I would say knows latitude and that helps us attract the best talent, the best money, the best mentors, et cetera, and support our founders. But at the same time, we need to scale back in order to maintain that level of selectiveness that will continue to drive us forward in the, in the next decade. Mm. I wonder when you are building up, like, I mean, now I hear about like the founder side, basically you start small and then be selective at the beginning instead of like diluting everybody with like a big cohort. But I wonder like, how do you convince all these mentors to 
kind of donate their time, right? Um, I think like on deck or like YC have some sort of like first mover advantage. I know yes. that you guys starting as like a um, Latin version of this is definitely having some first mover advantage. But I wonder going forward when you get bigger and then when you start charging people money, like I, I don't really know how to convince like the you know, Mark Hendrickson of the world to donate yeah. time to like come to my little totally. It's such a good question too, Grace. And I, I kind of hate people who say that's a good question to all the questions, but those are really great questions. Thank you. Um, oh my God. There are questions that we grapple with, you know, at Latitude. And I think you're totally right in that like, it's it's easy to be like, oh, let's invite so-and-so, but so-and-so's time is extremely limited and they only want to, you know, offer a little bit of it because including like, not that I'm that special, but like I have limited time. I know what that's like, you know? Um, so you need to understand exactly what's in it for the mentors that you are inviting to make it interesting for them. Um, at first it's like friendships. So I can invite like all my friends and be like, please, 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 please. Can you do it? You know, like if that helps with, like, I've had like a really, like I've had a career at a lot of top companies. And I know really incredible people, same with my co-founder Brian and, and others in the team. So we have, that's the first step, but how do you get them to come back? Right. Mm -hmm. So now you. Well, so that helps. You know this, right? So now that you can say, like, I have so-and-so on my podcast, you can get the next person to come on your podcast because you had so-and-so on your podcast. So, like, that is what you're doing, and it totally helps, right? Like, how do you get me to donate my time? It's the same question. Mm -hmm. What's in it for me? Like, so then, same, I think it applies here too, right? What's, what's in it for me to be on this podcast with you? Um, uh, I'll say there's a couple of things. First, there's something about me thinking that I'm a really good person because – the way that you approach me and the way that you followed up so diligently, I'm like, I respect this person's approach and I want to like reward that. I think that like we need more people like that and I want to like be a part of this. So that's me thinking I'm a good person and doing something that I think is good. There's a second element of that, which is you're a woman and you are international. And so I identify with that as a woman who's international. And I believe that women and people who are foreigners in countries have less opportunity. So I also want to like help with that. Then there's a third one, which is like a little bit of prestige, right? Like, I don't know exactly where your podcast is going. It sounds like you've already had some really great speakers. Maybe it'll blow up. Maybe it won't. But like, you know, there's some, some of it that definitely helps my prestige being like, yeah, I'm like, I'm on podcasts all the time. You know, like there's something about that that, mm -hmm. get, that makes people feel important. So being like a mentor at an institution that has a name gives you a sense of importance and allows mm -hmm. you to continue to build your reputation, which then helps you open doors in the world. So building a great brand at Latitude is important in order to enable people to feel that way when they're associated with Latitude. That's one. The second one is the feeling good aspect. So it's like, hey, you can help founders, like people who are really just trying to change the world, like, and they're doing it in developing markets that like have like most of the, like the these countries are like filled with poverty and problems and like making a difference there at scale is, is possible by working with entrepreneurs who are building solutions for millions of people. So that has like a sort of like heartstrings and identity pull. So there's like the reputational mm -hmm. identity. And then there's like, there's other stuff that I think a lot of these institutions don't explore, which I'm trying to start building for Latitude with my team, which is the opportunity to meet other amazing people. Like I'm sure a lot of the guests who have been on your podcast, like um, Elizabeth's co-founder, Eric, like I'm sure I would love mm -hmm. chatting with them. Right. And so, mm -hmm. I, but I wouldn't have the opportunity normally because we're all so busy, but if this were a conference right now, I would go in part because I get to meet amazing speakers backstage and like, mm -hmm. I'm going to have an amazing dinner and we're going to have such interesting conversations and maybe we'll develop some sort of relationship that leads to something at some point, even if it's just friendship. Um, so the connection with other people who are considered at the level that you are at is something that is a perk as well. 
Then when it comes to venture, there's the opportunity to invest in the best founders before other VCs find out about it. We invest at the pre-seed level. So there's an opportunity to say, okay, well, you know, we are carving out a little bit of money for select mentors and angels to participate in rounds, depending on how involved you are with Latitude. So like you can kind of be like a visiting partner, but not uh, in a very lightweight way. So outlining what is what is important. And I actually, we just created a document like this, like what we think is important to mentors. Another one is like giving them more of a voice, like, hey, we want to like publish things written by you. We want to like share that you're incredible and that you've shared all these insights and mm-hmm. whatever, like, so we, we've outlined all of them. And then I had calls with a bunch of our top mentors asking like, is this, do you think this is valuable? Like, is this, are we onto something? Some of them said no, some of them said yes. And then we refined the offer. We're going to refine it a little more. And then we're going to have mm-hmm. a call with mentors in a few weeks to be like, here's what we want to do for mentors. What do you think? Instead of just taking it for granted that they'll just be around on call whenever we want for nothing in exchange, because to your point, that gets old. Totally. Um, I wonder, what do you think are, have to be true to make latitude success uh, a success like so number like i mean i'm hearing like you know there is great founder great mentor um you know a community around it like that just the community alone i feel like it's really really hard to build right and then like and then there's like the marketing towards it like you know you are famous for like growth side of things and i wonder like what have to be true to make it a success and what's your level of priority like let's say latitude mm. year three versus latitude year 10 how do you mm. kind of like give yourself the kpi to um kind of get there so i would i'm gonna say like a little bit like i'm gonna be a little harsh and say that what has to be true for Latitude to succeed, it's not the community, it's not the mentors, it's not the marketing, like all, those are all things that we hope will help us succeed. But what has to be true are the two things that matter the most to our business. If you think about the business from the two pieces mm-hmm. that I outlined, first the products and the other one is the ventures. For the, the product side, we what needs to be true is that we need to build a very scalable tool, platform, product, call it whatever you want, with tech, that can service a very large number of people who really want those services and are willing to pay for them long-term in a repeatable way. I know that that's like kind of a cop-out, but like really that's what has to happen. So we right now have like a lot of, we have more clients than we can service on the compliance side. The incorporation stuff is smaller because there's less startups being formed, although that's picking up a bit and whatnot. But like really like we need to use the runway we have from the money invested in us by Andreessen and FX Endeavor and and other great founders in Latin America to basically understand and by like servicing the compliance and and incorporation Mm -hmm. clients, understand their core needs and build something that will allow us to continue scaling in a much more meaningful way, you know, Mm -hmm. as quickly as possible. It might mean servicing not such so early stage startups. It might mean you know, going more into finance, more into compliance. It might, at one point, it could even mean not even focusing on startups, just like SMBs or anyone with an offshore. Like we need to figure out what that ICP, like the ideal customer profile is and how much they're willing to pay and then do that. So like that's one. And then how are we going to do that? Well, I think the community helps because it attracts great founders. The huge conference, like for 4,000 people last year, does too because it brings all the major players in the ecosystem. And like our newsletter gives us this amazing distribution channel and the mentors and angels help refer startups before they need incorporation and compliance. So all of these things like help bring the customers to us and help us understand what that is. So that's one. 
On the other side, for Latitude Ventures, all that we need to do, all that needs to be true is that Latitude Ventures needs to invest in like the next N new banks of Latin America. So like whatever are the like next billion plus dollar companies, we need to find a couple of them. That's it. Because if you're able to find and invest in, in those outliers, that's how you get people to invest, continue investing in your fund. So we keep raising funds, you know, over time. And we, and then that's what makes the best founders come to you. Cause they're like, Oh, you invested in Google, you know, like before Google existed or whatever you invest, like, I want you to invest in me too, because it sounds like it helps me get that golden ticket, you know? And yeah. when you start investing in those top founders, then you get like, to understand how they operate, which allows you to get the, that operational expertise and pass it on to your new invested startups and so on and so forth. But to do that is really hard because you need to see all the startups available in the market. Because if you see all of them, except for one, and one of them was that one, like mm -hmm. you lost. And mm -hmm. then if, after you see all of them, you need to like pick the right ones, which is really not easy to oh, do because in the early days, <laughs> like you don't have anything. Like these founders show up and they're like, I have a dream of building like a pet, like platform for dogs and I want dogs to be able to have pets and you're like what and then they like have a PowerPoint I'm just this is a really bad idea but like you know just like they have like a numbers and here's my tab and then how do you pick who is actually going to be the person to solve a problem that's meaningful for a large enough group of people that actually like has potential aligns like that's not an easy task once you do that it's actually really hard to convince those founders to take your money because those mm -hmm. best founders have options and they're going to be like, well, I don't know, man, like this other fund is offering me a much better deal and they invested in Airbnb, you know, and you're mm -hmm. like, so then you have to build a reputation and resources that will make that founder say, no, I want Latitude's money because I know like Latitude has integrity. They're going to be there for me because they're super founder friendly, they're transparent, like, and they're going to help me in my next rounds without trying to take advantage of me at any point. And I know that because I've seen the work you've done and I've heard from other founders that that's the case. Um, and then last, least important, I would say is like, once you do that, you need to be able to support your founders really well, because founders are going to run into problems. They always will. And if you can be the partner that they call at night when they're worried and you can tell them like, Hey, I have someone that you should talk to, or I have a solution. Or I have an idea and it really helps them. They'll tell their friends and then other founders will trust you as, as real partners. So that's what we need to build. And then what that looks like looks different across different venture funds. And for us, it looks like this community, this big conference, and then this very tiered select of approach to the new fellowship model, the portfolio support, the incredible network of mentors that we've built in Latin America and in Silicon Valley, the access to U.S. capital and other things. Um, how do you do the venture part? Because I feel like that's a different model from like on deck and then bless you and like i feel like it's really hard to like like you said like you know meet all these startups and then convince them and then like build a reputation and all that i wonder um i personally feel like um if you're like investing in like a pre-seed or seed stage you kind of just like do the numbers game like invest in just a bunch of companies it's like, <laughs> yeah. i i kind of like feel like when i'm just observing friends like Silicon Valley, <laughs> like some of them just become huge and i feel like if i just invest in like one thousand dollar of all my friends like i'll be like no. now so i wonder how do you like approach this in a systematic way and do yeah. you feel like also another thing is like observing all these different countries trying to do like a yc in their country um like not many succeed because um mm -hmm. i feel like the 
playbook in america even i saw people like you know trying to do like a dorm room fun in like another country and like none of them kind of having the quite success out i could you know refer in our podcast today and i wonder how do you kind of like do the localization when these things are you know like the framework may work in the u.s but like may not yeah I'll answer the second one first. I think we talked about it a little bit, but I agree 100%. It, you can't just take a model from the US and then plop it in another region because it's just different realities. I think people are very similar. However, the realities of building a startup is different because different ecosystems are at different stages of their development, meaning there are very different numbers of successful like billion dollar companies and uh, a different timeline of them being developed and different amounts of venture capital. and in some of these regions, you have solutions like incorporation and compliance tools, and some you don't. So there's a lot of things that are nuanced in that respect. Um, I believe in, in in understanding what works about that model and then learning and then listening really hardcore to your customer needs and adapting as quickly as possible to them instead of just copy paste, which is what we're doing with Latitude, even though I said at many points, I was like, I want to be the YC of Latam. Like after a lot of discussions, especially with my partner, Tommy Rojo, we decided not to go in that direction. We are borrowing some elements from YC that we think are brilliant in terms of what they accomplish, but others are we're just not because we don't think it's going to work. doesn't mean that we're going to get it right. I think we're on a, on, a, on a good track, and I think we've proven ourselves so far, and we have some track record, but we're very early on at Latitude, you know, and we're just going to have to keep working really hard to learn, adapt, iterate, learn, adapt, iterate like every year until we become what we become. And I don't know what that's going to be because I'm hoping that we'll keep learning instead of like having one goal and just, and then just going towards it without learning from what we are experiencing. Um, in terms of the spray and pray question that you asked me, it's such a, it's a fun one and a good one because I'm a new VC. Like I've invested now in 15 startups as an angel and I've been in tech for 15 years and I've been a partner of Latitude Ventures since the start. But this is the first year that I'm really going full-time GP and I'm like really paying attention mm -hmm. a lot, you know, to how this works. And I, at one point, I, I, I had the same impression as you. I was like, it's kind of a numbers game. It feels pretty arbitrary. No one really knows who's going to succeed. And I think that it, there is some truth to that. But I, I also believe that you can learn with what they call like pattern recognition from a VC standpoint, just... You learn what is a great founder versus a not great founder. Like, you know how, like, I don't really know how to tell wines apart. Like, in general, like, I can tell you what, like, maybe, like, a Pinot is or a Cab is, but I can't tell you which one is, like, a $30 bo dollar no, bottle yeah. of wine. I totally agree. Same as latte, like, coffee or whatever. It's, I mean, yeah. I'm not that I person, know. but I know if you give me a $10 bottle of wine, and a 100 bottle of dollar bottle of wine i can tell you the difference between that right so that's already a big thing that you can tell because like when you have millions and millions of people and like hundreds if not thousands of them want to be entrepreneurs you start understanding which ones are like very unlikely to succeed from like not that hard not that hard things to catch on just like lack of resilience lack of passion to like just keep going lack of understanding of a problem like lack of desire to talk to people, whatever it is, right? I mean, they can't even convince you. They can't convince anyone else to join their team. You start noticing things that are kind of fairly obvious, but not, you know, you don't have to be a genius. But the more you meet founders, the better you become because the more wines you drink, the more refined your palate becomes. It's kind of like that, I think. There's that piece. Then the more you work in VC, you also start gaining a better understanding of industries and industry trends. And like, and then you start recognizing those opportunities and different decks and who's going after the right things. and. So, so there is some, some 
uh, you know, there's a lot that you can learn over the years and have a lot of respect for the VCs who have proven themselves over and over again. But in the beginning, I do think that there's a lot of small funds who are just kind of like just trying their luck. And then, and then it's a matter of like, do you get access to the best people or not? And that's a big differentiator. But I will say that you can also evolve that strategy. So in the beginning, in our first fund, we invested like, a, like something like less than 100K in 100 different companies almost, like some, like 60 companies plus a few angel checks. That's a lot of startups. It's almost like mm -hmm. a spray and pray. But it wasn't quite spray and pray because we we got to see hundreds and hundreds of founders because about 700 of them applied per cohort for Latitude. So we were seeing thousands of founders. So that's you know not that high of a percentage rate. And, and then we were able to see a lot who had some signal. We said, let's index the market and identify all of the viable opportunities who we think might grow. And then we can put a check in in the, in, a, in the next round or at least become references for when like a U.S. fund hears, hears about a startup. They have latitude on their cap table. These are the ones that are likely to get there. So that was our first strategy. We've then now iterated, which I see a lot of funds doing. We're putting slightly bigger checks in a smaller amount of companies. We want bigger ownership. We want to because all of these founders need support. They all have questions for us. I know we're over time now, but like if, if we don't have a meaningful enough participation in that company, it's hard to allocate that much time a week to help that founder. So you need a larger participation to have the incentives aligned. And so that's how portfolio um, portfolios can evolve over time. Wow. Thank you so much, Gina. This is such a great conversation. I literally have like five more questions, but I don't want to waste too much of your time. You're not wasting um, my time, but thank you for respecting the timeline. Um, uh, I appreciate it. I have like a one minute fire round for you to okay. um, finish this up. I don't, I don't know if you have time, but anyway, so, okay. What's your favorite book? Three minutes late. I'm just ending this my next meeting. Favorite oh, okay. book. Um, 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 I'm going to say this is not fast enough. Um, and I'm forgetting the name of my favorite book, which is a problem. You might have to edit this grace. You know what? I'll, I'll just say the design of everyday things. It's not really my favorite huh. book, but it's one that really like made an impact for me when I was trying to work with growth, had to work with designers, didn't know where to start. And it helped me mm -hmm. think about what design is. What, who will you invite to your dinner party? I would invite Golda Meir, the former prime minister of Israel. Uh, who made the biggest impact in your career? Realistically, Luis Fanon co-founder of Duolingo and my ex-fiance. Uh, where can we find you outside of work? Outside of work? You mean like on social media? I am at Gina on Instagram. I have that flex because yeah. I'm a tester of Instagram. Um, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn, but you need my email to befriend me, but you can send me a message asking for it. Um, I'm on, oh Twitter, I'm on X or whatever, Gina G. And when I'm not working, what am I doing? I'm hanging out with my dog probably in Central Park. Amazing. Thank you so much, Gina, for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Grace. It was a pleasure. I am.